Uh, my question is about the trauma of, you know, waking up every morning with this whole affair on my mind. And I'm just wondering how long this will go on for because it's very taxing. When, when did you find out about the affair? It's al- almost six months ago. Yeah. Unfortunately, there is no kind of real time frame on this just because the variability between everybody and everything, you know, different people have different reactions and depending on what, you know, your life story was bringing into this and the different details of the affair, um, everything is so different. It's hard to ever say, well, average time frame, you know. Hello, my name is Tim Tedder, creator of AffairHealing.com, and along with my wife, Sharon Tedder, co-owner of Currents Counseling Services. In a two-part series, Sharon and I are going to help give you more insight into the trauma of betrayal. In this first podcast, part one, we will focus on understanding trauma. And in the next podcast, part two, we will help point the way towards recovery from trauma. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Welcome to The Recovery Room, a podcast presented by AffairHealing.com. Here are your hosts, Tim and Sharon Tedder. Let's begin with this truth. Affair betrayal is not simply like trauma. Affair betrayal is traumatic to the person who was injured. This is something that unfaithful partners often don't understand. Sure, they have a sense that they have caused injury and pain, but oftentimes the depth of that pain and the length of the experienced injury may be judged as unnecessary or exaggerated when that simply isn't the case. And even betrayed partners are often surprised and even confused at the depth of the hurt and the constant reminders that come to them that take them right back into that cycle of pain and hurt and fear and anxiousness. In her book, How to Help Your Spouse Heal from Your Affair, therapist and author Linda McDonald writes this, Intimate betrayal robs faithful spouses of many core aspects of their marriages. Their sense of safety, specialness, value, exclusivity, and trust are wiped out in a flash. Reminders of these losses re-injure betrayed spouses over and over again. Certain objects, locations, or events associated with the affair tend to trigger feelings of intense pain, fear, dread, or aversion within the hurt spouse, often for many years. Most betrayed partners will experience the betrayal as a trauma in their life. It's an unexpected event that shatters normal certainty and security and inflicts deep damage. On a brisk April afternoon, 27-year-old Rebecca and her boyfriend made their way through crowded sidewalks, heading to Boston's Copley Square. They had already enjoyed a day full of activity as they found a spot where they could stand and cheer for his mother, who would soon cross the marathon's finish line. Then, at 2.49 p.m., 
the first of two homemade bombs exploded into the crowd, tearing and tossing the bodies of spectators who had been celebrating just seconds before. At 2.48, Rebecca had a pretty good idea of what the next hours, days, and years might be like. In an instant, that reality shifted. In a matter of minutes, my entire world changed. Everything I knew was literally blown to pieces, she later wrote. She endured 17 surgeries, relentless pain, and the eventual loss of her left leg. Sharon Tedder is both my wife and business partner, and is a counselor who is effective in helping her clients process past pains, injuries, and traumas. I've asked Sharon to help us understand trauma and the effect it has on those people who experience it. In our brains, we have different areas that control different things. That's really elementary stuff. (laughs) But when a trauma happens, the different parts of our brains that typically control certain things go a little bit haywire. And a traumatic memory does not get processed the same way that a regular memory gets processed. So when you think about going down to the store to get milk or you think, oh, I put gas in my car yesterday, that memory is stored in a very different way than a traumatic memory would be stored. A lot of things happen very quickly in rapid succession when an experience of trauma happens for someone. So we have now seen by brain scans, MRIs and whatnot, that when someone has a trauma, the left side of their brain has much less activity than the right side of their brain. And that's important because the right side of your brain is where all of your fight, flight, or freeze areas are located. The amygdala is that side. And so what happens is your brain takes a trauma, no matter what it is, even if it isn't actually life-threatening. So let's say the difference between someone getting held up at gunpoint at an ATM machine, which truly is life-threatening, or the other side, somebody being abused by someone verbally. Some of that can be intensely traumatic. Or as we talk about a lot here, when somebody finds out that their long-term partner or spouse has been cheating on them. What happens is their brains thinks that that is life-threatening because it digs in subconsciously to the very core of their experience of safety in the world, their experience of belonging in the world, their sense of identity. It taps into all of that in a split second. And if they could see an MRI of their brains, they would see that the left side is much less active than the right side. It is almost dark. And one area that is specifically darker is Broca's area, which is the language center of the brain. One of my favorite books on trauma, and arguably, in my opinion, one of the best, is The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. It is really definitive stuff. It talks a lot about the brain-body connection, how trauma takes up residence in our brains, why it's doing that, to the best of our knowledge at this point in time. He really, really describes some pertinent information about how trauma affects our thinking. 
One of the main things he talks about is the idea that trauma affects the brain by hijacking the basic housekeeping system and the emotional brain by decreasing the activity of the rational brain. And what that kind of means is essentially trauma affects our thinking because whenever you experience a trauma, And then later, that trauma is triggered or kicked up by something that happens in your environment. Your brain goes into that same mode of thinking that it did the moment the trauma first happened. So what happens is the rational part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, the part that is the judgment seat and tells you how to think about things and what's the best course of action to take, that part is much less active. It sort of goes into a daze or into a sleep while the right side of your brain, which is where fight, flight, or freeze happens, that survival part of your brain, the right side that is like life or death here, have to make a decision immediately. Don't have to think it through. Just have to run or just have to fight for your life or freeze up and be as small and invisible as you possibly can. So you go into that state again, even if it's months or years or decades past when the actual trauma happened. Another important thing to remember about how trauma affects our thinking is that, as I said before, trauma is not stored the same way in your brain as a regular run-of-the-mill kind of memory. Bessel van der Kolk in his book says, Ordinary memories have beginnings, middles, and ends. They are seamlessly integrated into a person's story of their life, and the person usually moves on. A traumatic memory is a sensory and visual experience. It fires up the visual cortex of the brain and creates physiological changes. The traumatized person experiences the memory as if the trauma is happening at the current moment. So that's really powerful stuff when you recognize that when someone is traumatized and they get triggered, and that word gets overused in my opinion, I hear it for things that aren't actually talking about triggers. Triggers are almost like a reflex of the mind. You know, when the doctor taps your knee with that little hammer and you don't control it, but your leg flips up. Triggers are sort of like that in your brain. You don't control them. It is something that goes off like the trigger of a gun. And immediately that person is reliving the trauma in that moment. As stated in the quote I just read, the visual cortex of the brain even gets lit up when someone is reliving a trauma, meaning they are actually seeing it in their brains again. That's really important because a lot of times trauma sufferers are kind of looked at weirdly or people get kind of frustrated with them and think that they are, quote, making a big deal out of something, end quote. (laughs) And that is absolutely not true. A true trauma stimulates the brain in a way that that person never gets free from. They relive it over and over again. The sense of time is altered in a trauma sufferer. Their brain doesn't understand that that trauma is not happening right now again, over and over. The brain doesn't understand that. It has no sense of linear time. It doesn't get that, oh, this happened a month ago. Oh, this happened two years ago. Oh, this happened 20 years ago. Your brain doesn't understand that. The part that is getting triggered, that primal area of your brain is like, Once again, it's happening. I have to survive. I have to get out. And you either go into fight, flight, or freeze. 
It's a very visceral reaction. The vagal nerve gets stimulated and the person actually feels physical sensations as they are reliving and their brain is seeing, in so many words, the event all over again. So what happens when the left side of the brain isn't online and the right side is very much online? Since the left side of the brain makes sense of things, the language side, it is the rational side, it is the one that is making sense of our world for us all the time. If it is offline when we're getting triggered and moving forward, even if we're not in a trigger, if we move forward from our trauma a lot of times, we're thinking with this way in a kind of impaired way. Our rational side is just a little bit muted. It doesn't quite have the same flair and intensity that the right side does. And we end up living in the past, essentially. We end up unable to move forward in a healthy way and create healthy relationships with other people and interact with our world in the present moment. People who have suffered some kind of trauma that is left untreated kind of tend to have a real problem in those areas. And they move forward in you know, a fairly well-adapted way sometimes, yet they're never quite 100% right. And that is because you get caught in the past. Your thoughts and your way of thinking is a little bit impaired at all times. Not that you can't make good decisions, not that you're less intelligent, none of those things. But it's just a matter of looking at the world through a lens that is a little bit traumatized. Those who experience trauma are often left with a feeling of hopelessness, despair, doom. The belief that everything that they expected would be the reality of life has been taken away from them and all that's left is kind of a dark gloom. That can feel like your reality, but it's not the truth. The hope of healing and recovery is real. People who have been through devastating trauma, including a fair betrayal, have found ways to get through that injury, that pain, that devastation, that sometimes feeling of hopelessness, and move through it to the other side where they experience growth, hope, change, and renewal. In our next podcast, we'll talk about the recovery from trauma, but let me leave you with this. Rebecca had a pretty good idea of what the next hours, days, and years might be like. In an instant, that reality shifted. She later wrote, I have two choices. I can be mad that this happened to me, or I can be blessed that I have a daily reminder that life is short and I am still here. Two years after the bombing, Rebecca decided to run in the Boston Marathon. She experienced unexpected difficulty with her prosthetic leg and relied on others to help her complete the race. When she crossed the finish line, she said, It wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, and I didn't run as far as I wanted to run, but I still did what I came here to do, and I have to be proud of myself for that. I took my life back today. I want people to know that there's life after bad things happen to you. 
The Recovery Room Podcast is a resource provided by AffairHealing.com. For more information about the podcast and resources for Affair Recovery, including archives of past programs and the schedule for upcoming ones, please go to AffairHealing.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Tim Tedder. See you next time.